please check out this episode on Rumble. Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigalov, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigaloff was either off-duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigaloff was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigaloff. Well, today I want to introduce a very special guest that we have, Catherine Watt. So Catherine Watt is a paralegal, and she has been pouring over research and looking at, at all the different laws in the books. And it's important to know the law because the law is what governs uh, what goes on in our world. That's how we've decided to make this world work is by different laws. And it's important that we understand the actual, the writing and what these laws mean. And Catherine Watt, can you just go ahead and give us an overview of what you've discovered? I know you've discovered quite a bit and what has to do with EUA and emergency use authorization and um, those, those types of laws. Um, basically what I've found is that in the mid thirties, um, to the mid forties, um, Congress and U S presidents started sort of merging the national security state with the public health, um, system through things like the public health service act and the, um, federal food, drug and cosmetics act. Um, then throughout the fifties and sixties, they worked on subordinating the U.S. public health structure to the World Health Organization, um, and specifically putting a lot of power in the hands of first the Surgeon General, and now then they switched it over to the Health and Human Services Secretary. And then starting in 1983, they set up the public health emergencies um, structures, which put emergency powers into the hands of the HHS Secretary. And then from there, they developed. Um, like piece by piece building on that foundation up to what we got the EUAs um, in 1997 and 2004, and then um, just kept going. Okay. And so how did they, well, which way did they craft the law that they could be able to um, take power that maybe they shouldn't have? Um through the Public Health Emergencies Act in 1983 first, and then they developed that, especially in the mid-2000s, under the rubric of the um, World Health Organization's international health regulations. Um, one of the conditions of that set of regulations was that nation states had to implement a lot of different things about surveillance and um, medical countermeasures and different things to manage public health emergencies once they were declared by the WHO. And so those mid-2000s ones were things like the PREP Act and Project BioShield. Um, and what they did was set up more surveillance, set up more quarantine power to apprehend and detain people. Um, they, um, presidents passed a whole series of executive orders um, adding communicable diseases to the list of things that the HHS secretary was authorized to trigger the quarantine provisions under, including SARS, um, which Bush put on, um, influenza, which Bush also put on, and then uh, suspected but asymptomatic SARS. So any respiratory illness that 
you might have but didn't have any symptoms got added by Obama in 2014, I think. Um, and then the other piece was dismantling the informed consent um, protocols and regulations. Um, and exactly they did a did major, they... major change of that in January. How exactly did they make those major changes in January what, 2000? What were the changes for the informed consent laws? Yeah. Um, most of them came into place in January 2017. Um, and they were kind of a response by the Health and Human Services Department to a law Congress passed in 2016 called the Cures Act, and also Project BioShield and a, a few other ones. But um, from what I understand now, there's two different frameworks they can go under. They can go under the emergency use authorization, and they can go under the investigational new drugs. And those are two separate legal categories. Um, but the phrases they attached to the EUA are known and potential benefits and known and potential risks. And when they put that language in to an EUA authorization letter or any other document, legal document related to it, it means that the individual risk benefit assessment power has been transferred to the HHS secretary. And if the HHS secretary says the known and potential risks and benefits mean that this should be given, then the individual has lost their rights because the providers and everyone else will go by what the HHS secretary said, not by what the patient said or what the doctor said. Um, and on the investigational new drug side, the phrase they started using is called minimal risk or poses only a minimal risk. Um, both of those were specifically written to get around the idea that the individual patient in consultation with his or her doctor has the right to assess the risks and benefits themselves and instead said, no, the HHS secretary can make a blanket decision for everyone in the country that this product has certain known and unknown risks and benefits that have been determined by the secretary to be acceptable. Um, and then on the IND side, they've the same thing, but they call it minimal risk. And so with their, if I'm understanding you right, what they did was they changed the law to where the patient and the doctor don't matter anymore. doesn't matter what they think. doesn't matter what they feel is an appropriate level of risk, right? Because what perhaps what you think is a level of risk and what I think a level of risk, right. there may be significant differences. And what the HHS secretary may think is significant yeah. risk may be vastly different than the two of us. And he may be able to take significant more risk because well, not only what because he's not it's not his body, right? Right, right. It's not only whether the person thinks. It, there's part of what different people's views are on how much risk they want to take and how much benefit they perceive, but there's also the fact that everyone has individual bodies with individual health conditions and levels of health and levels of risk that are unique to their own body that the HHS secretary has no ability and no interest in taking account of those things. So it's like it's risk tolerance on the one hand, but it's also what is your actual risk profile? If you're an elderly person with diabetes, it's very different from if you're a five-year-old that has no health problems. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, and I've, I've seen this play out in real time with some of my patients right. and even myself. Like I, I have a heart issue that could increase my risk of clots. And so I try to get a medical exemption to not get this right. shot. Now, even if I don't get a medical exemption, I, I feel strong enough. And people with game bar and right. things like that. And I feel strong enough that I'll never get it. But there's some people that will still feel the pressure to get it. And you're right, exactly. Guillain-Barre is like, I, I, know a sur- I know a surgeon who got Guillain-Barre from some, I think it was influenza vaccine or something. And they had their, their um, uh, medical exemption removed. It's like, well, they were already exempt from all vaccines. Why are they now not exempt from this one? Right. Right. And the interesting thing is it, it even shows up in in the fact sheets that Pfizer gives out. Um, they list a bunch of things like if you have had these problems, you shouldn't take this shot. But it's superseded by the minimal risk language and the known and potential risk and benefits language. Um, And the other piece that has come out in some of the things that I've read is that they've um, altered the interpretation of informed consent itself to mean the person giving the shot needs to, has an obligation to inform you of the consequences of accepting or refusing the injection. And where most people until before 2020 thought, well, that means you have a meaningful option to refuse because they can't coerce you with other things. Uh, Around the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, they shifted the laws and the regulations to make it so that the person telling you that is really only required to tell you if you refuse, one of the negative consequences that can happen is you can lose your job or you can be discharged from the military or you can lose your place at school, which is coercion, but they've changed, not changed it, but they've um, tried to put it under the framework of informed consent because you are being given information. That is true. You are being told you will lose your livelihood and your school education if you choose differently than the government wants you to choose or than your employer wants you to choose or your school. How sick and incredibly twisted is that we took this idea of informed consent, meaning I give you the risks and the benefits. I laid them right. out before you so you make an informed decision. And now part of that, they've twisted the right the verbiage of that to include, well, you could get fired. That's part of the risk. You, you could lose your livelihood. You could lose your retirement. Right. Um, they just call it a secondary consequence. Right. And this, the the moment this is being filled. Yeah, is, the is two the, documents about that. If yeah, the two documents that are really key to that one are a July sixth, twenty twenty one, legal opinion by uh, Deputy Attorney General Don Don D A W N Johnson J O H N S E N, and she sort of laid out all of the legal authorities they were doing, and even went into some some discussion of what did Congress think they were doing when they passed this. Maybe they thought there was still an affirmative informed consent right, but they were silly to think that because the wording is flexible enough that you don't have that. And the other the other main series of things is Congressional Research Service, CRS, um, reports by an attorney named Wen, W-E-N, Shen, S-H-E-N, 
Um, and he started writing those in actually in early 2019 before anything had happened about what the federal and state authorities to regulate or require or mandate vaccines would be. And, um, he, he used the phrase, uh, secondary consequences to refer to those things like losing your job, losing your pension, losing your military position, um, losing your place at school. So those, those two attorneys, um, did the, the bulk of the, um, legal interpretation of the regulations and statutes. And it, it even suggests that many people in Congress were not aware of the full scope of what they were um, destroying in informed consent when they passed those laws. Some of them were, but not all of them. Right. And that's one thing about... I the... interrupted you, though. Oh, no, you know, you didn't. Um, that's one thing about the law is, you know, as a layperson, right, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a paralegal, I'm just a doctor. Um, and, and by the way, a doctor that hasn't practiced medicine since September 13th. We it's it's sometimes easy for us to think, oh, well, yeah, it's written that way, but maybe they didn't mean it that way. But that's not really how law works, is it? It's however it can no. be interpreted is how it is interpreted. Right. And a lot of that goes back to some of the um, things that have been more talked about recently about the administrative state, um, which basically has uh, taken for itself basically legislative power from Congress and state legislatures and um, now essentially passes laws without any um, oversight at all because Congress passes something that's very, very broad. And then the regulations that implement it, which are done by the, the federal agencies, add in the substantive meat of the thing. Um, Do you have an and example? They can, they can put huge amounts of stuff into those. Um, well, I, I'm thinking about it recently because I was looking at um, this deputy attorney general's uh, legal opinion, and because she does go into the um, she goes into the congressional record to look at some of the discussions that were happening, and they they were discussing it as far as will this do away with informed consent? But they were also discussing it in the framework of how do we encourage pharmaceutical corporations to do the research and development on some of these things that are major threats, such as um, antimicrobial resistance, when there's very little upfront payoff for them because... Um, there may or may not be a market on the consumer side for whatever they develop. And so Congress, under the influence of the CDC and the FDA and the Health and Human Services Secretary, said, well, okay, then we have to put a whole bunch of federal funding and a whole bunch of liability um, protections to encourage these corporations to do this research because we want this research to get done and otherwise they have no incentive. And on the flip side, they did think a little bit about, well, if we give them liability exemptions, then what's to stop them from doing nefarious things, whether for profit or for other reasons? Or even um, by accident. But they kind of just glossed over it. They put, 
They what? Even by accident. Because if you have risk um, of penalty, even by accident, you're less likely to make bad mistakes. Right. Yes. And even some of these laws that they passed, like suspended things like inspections, suspended, like, like one of them made it so that Congress did not have access to the financial records anymore, where they had used to be able to say, we want to have a look at your books. Um, and the, the argument, which goes back to the 1983 public health emergencies law, the argument from the people pitching these things, like the Project BioShield Act, was, well, in an emergency, we're not going to have time to go in and look at the books, and we're not going to have time to do clinical studies. We're going to just have to like roll these things out and do it fast. And that's why you need to give us all of these authorities. So Congress, in a broad way, gave them the authorities. And then when they went to the regulatory section, they filled in the details about how they were going to do that. Um, and so things like like the Cures Act, I'm not sure how many pages it is, um, probably about 30. And then the implementing regulations are like 300 pages because they, they added in all of those details about where are the financial records going to go, who is going to have oversight, nobody, um, because they leave it up to administrate or agency discretion. That's another phrase. And what's, what's the significance of knowing, up a lot. knowing the financial um, side of, of this? Because we're doing, um, we're doing this. I mean, I think it's the the series that I'm doing is is you know bio warfare, and right. And if we're at war, and we're having a company make something for us, wouldn't it be critically important for us to know mm -hmm. where that money is coming from, to know where their motivation and where their drive is coming from? Yes, it's totally the follow the money, follow the money principle. Because you follow the money, you find whose interests are being served by the project. Right. And so if we don't know who's making this product or who has an, maybe a significant influence, as I talked about in my first episode of, of the bio warfare uh, series, I talk about how Fosun Pharmaceutical has an agreement with uh, BioNTech back in March of 2020. Well, Fosun Pharmaceutical is China. Mm. And then China has an agreement mm -hmm. with uh, China slash BioNTech has an agreement with um, Pfizer in July of 2020. And then the U.S. government has an order for these these vaccines coming from Pfizer-BioNTech, which is really Pfizer, Fosun, or China. Right. And like shell corporations on the U.S. side as well. Somebody Somebody sent me a link the other day about that which I had sort of read about, but I haven't looked into it deeply, but the DOD used pass-through organizations to make um, their own contracts less accessible through FOIA. Um, wow. I think the company's acronym is ATI, but if you look at the Pfizer contracts, you do actually see the name of that. Um, I can send that to you after I, I track it down. Yeah, I'd love um, to know more about that. because And that, that relates back to the fact that it's, DOD contracts, it's not HHS contracts, um, and it's prototype contracts, not vaccine contracts. And that's that's part of what's going on with the Brooke Jackson case. Um, she has a whistleblower case under the False Claims Act because she was the clinical trials manager for the early um, clinical trials in Texas. And almost immediately when she got to the site, realized that everything that should be 
done for a valid clinical trial was not being done and patient safety was at risk and the um, validity of the trial was at risk. So she tried to contact FDA and she tried to contact her immediate supervisors at Ventavia and she tried to contact Pfizer, who was contracting Ventavia to do the studies. Um, and um, so she filed this whistleblower suit in January of 2021. If it had gone through, it could have it could have stopped everything right at the beginning, but the Department of Justice sat on it because the Department of Justice is in on the whole um, bioweapons program against the American people. And they put her under a gag order, um, which she broke in November of 2021 when they started coming after the kids. Um, and so she had a, a, talked to a reporter at the British Medical Journal, um, Paul Thacker, I think. And then the case moved forward a little bit. And in April, Pfizer filed a motion to dismiss her case on the argument that it wasn't possible for Pfizer and Ventavia to have defrauded the US government because the contract did not require them to use good clinical practices. And the reason it didn't require them to use good clinical practices was because it wasn't uh, a contract for the vaccine. It was a prototype contract requiring them to demonstrate that they could rapidly produce lots and lots and lots of products called vaccines. Um, and because they had demonstrated that, they actually did produce millions and millions of doses very quickly. They had fulfilled their contractual obligations the U.S. government had been completely satisfied with everything that they had done and had continued paying, even though the government knew what Brooke Jackson was saying. And so um, I actually think they're probably going to succeed on that argument. Um, but it relates to the pass-throughs and the contracting and the follow the money and the fact that it's, it's all under DOD. It's not, it's not under HHS. It's sort of under HHS to the extent that there's a merger, right. but the actual contract is a DOD contract, and DOD is distributing all of the products that are being um, being produced. And there's something that's interesting that I want to mention. I don't know if, if you have, I mean, you might have something to say about it. I've read this a thousand times, I, I probably literally no less than a thousand times, and just maybe two weeks ago, I reread it, and I realized what I was actually reading is it said that it was part of the the Frago number five, and it said that commanders will ensure that there is enough DO, Department of Defense authorized vaccines. And in my mind, I had always re read, you know, FDA approved vaccines, but that's not what it says. It specifically says Department of Defense uh, approved vaccines. Well, the Department of Defense is not in the business of approving vaccines. So how does that, how can we justify that? And is that any sort of legal uh, shuffle step that they're doing? Yeah, and how does the DOD, like how do they get, because that doesn't seem like a careless mistake to put DOD approved vaccines instead of FDA approved vaccines. How do they, is there's framework that that would allow them to say that or is that just something that seems patently false? No, I think there is framework to, that they would do that because of the way the, um, the statutes and the regulations have merged so many of the federal agencies to do public health, what they call public health, what I call 
bioterrorism program um, together. So they have they have done things to make it so that there are task forces that include the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of Health, the Attorney General, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, the Secretary of Agriculture, and several other high-level um, cabinet members to get in a room together regularly to coordinate what they're doing. And they, at the same time that they've merged that kind of supervisory um, level, they've also merged the the regulatory level um, as far as, like, yeah, it, it makes total sense to me that, that it could be EOD approved is some other version of FDA approved um, that specifically comes into play when they're talking about um, giving them directly to military members or some other set of circumstances. Did you run across the the, the part where they, it was March 27, 2020, when they declared the emergency? And did you read across that where it, it talks about the, there's, it says four, but really there's only three reasons to, to declare an emergency? Um, I know about that, but there are so many of them right about the same time that I can't put my finger right on the one that you're talking about. Okay. Um, well, and it has to do yeah. with like the, the things there has to be one of these three things have to be in place for them to declare an emergency so that they can use emergency use authorization. And, num- mm-hmm. and I may have these in the wrong oh, order, yeah. but one yeah. is there's a chemical no biologic treatment. Whether there's chemical, biologic, nucleologic, or radiologic threat against U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, or seaburn right. for short, so seaburn, mm-hmm. um, a seaburn threat against U.S. citizens on foreign soil, or a seaburn mm-hmm. threat against the military. Mm-hmm. And so it seems when one reads that, that for them to even declare an emergency to be able to use this emergency use authorization, we have to be in a state of biological attack. Yes, but also they wrote the underlying laws for that broadly enough to encompass what they wanted it to encompass, which was things that could be construed as natural outbreaks, things that could be construed as attacks by a foreign entity, um, deliberate, and things that could be construed as an accidental release of a pathogen from a lab conducting research for allegedly um, prophylactic purposes. Um, Because one of the things they they say that is even that if it could be, you know, some natural pathogen, but that it could be attributed to these agents and these agents being the seaburn agents, which to me is, is like, did, were we in a declared war back in March of 2020? Right. Well, actually, I think we were declared war earlier, um, January 31st of 2020, when they made the declaration that a public health emergency exists. Um, yeah, that, that, I think, was the declaration of war and on us. Um, the other piece of that is that they added in um, November 17th, 2021, so just like eight months ago. Um, I think when they figured out that the lab leak or the lab release 
was going to not be something they could successfully suppress forever, the Health and Human Services Department went ahead and added chimeric SARS-CoV-2 viruses um, that had been manipulated in a lab to a list of sort of scheduled toxins under 42 CFR, I think 73.3. And once an, a product or a substance or a compound is put on that list, it makes it legally uh, regulatable or makes the, the process of dealing with whatever the emergency is fall under the public health framework instead of under the bioweapons framework. And I think they did that because they were adding another layer of confusion for other people and adding another layer of protection for themselves. Um, because if it were construed as a bioweapon, which is increasingly clear, we can demonstrate with the evidence how far back this design process was going and what the purposes were. Um, then they would be subject to the international laws and the federal laws that prohibit use of bioweapons and development of bioweapons. Um, so they, they legally changed the definition of manipulated chimeric viruses from bioweapons to public health threats by that thing that they did in November 2021. Well, it's interesting because um, I would I would almost consider all of these alleged vaccines, especially these ones that are self-spreading, um, in particular mm-hmm. ones that, that use an adenovirus, like um, yep. is it J&J and uh, AstraZeneca? Um, mm-hmm. If they use an uh, adenovirus, isn't that a man-made virus? Because yeah, it, I, I, would, I, I think you're correct. I think, I think the bioweapons program goes back a long time. And um, yeah, they just, they do a lot of things to muddy it, so it's hard for regular people to like track down what they're doing and the meaning of what they're doing. And they they do a lot of things to protect themselves, so that even to the extent people figure it out, they will point to some of these things and say, "Well, you can't prosecute us because under this law, what we did was legal." Um, I don't know how far that's going to get them. Um, I know that that's one of the main angles that um, or approaches that David Martin is is working on um and i think it's a good approach to take but i do know that they've put up tons and tons of these um barriers and blind alleys and things like that to to protect themselves and keep the program running and to it, kill as many people as they can you brought up an interesting point so you said legal and now there is a difference between something that's legal and something that's lawful is that correct yes. and can you- i don't i don't really know how to talk about it well okay. but yes i've that's the thing that it comes up with. I, Dolores Cahill has been talking about it. I've been talking about it. A bunch of other people have been talking about it. There's a difference between natural law, which is like What's good and right. aligned with good and right, yes, and actual like on paper legal um, that they do to is try that, to like get out of some of these things. I've recently come across that uh, in one of my officer evaluation reports when I was relieved for cause. They said that I. I said this was an illegal thing, blah, blah, blah. And I've never said it was illegal. And so that made me dive into this idea of lawful versus legal. And the idea is, at one point in our country, and most throughout the world, and we were the first ones to get rid of slavery, it was a 
legal issue and it was legally you could legally own someone it was always Uh an unlawful issue because lawfulness includes the idea of morality and ethics and so even if it is let's say legal like they they can use a bioweapon against u.s citizens because it's they're legally allowed to do it it's still unlawful because that's not the the ethical or the moral thing to do absolutely yes and it seems like they're they're threading that needle to try and trick most of us to think, oh well, it's it's legal, so well you have to do it, even though it's it's completely like blood curdling to think of them coercing someone to put something in their body they don't want. Right, and the other thing is that the laws the laws can be changed; they are changed all the time. Things that like like the example of slavery, things that were legal but were immoral, the laws were then changed to make them illegal in addition to being immoral. Um, and one of the things that that I've been thinking about with that is that people talk a lot about just following orders is not a defense. Since since the Nuremberg Code and since people were hung for trying to say that they were just following orders, but that was found to be immoral and illegal, so those people were hung. They have actually tried to re-legalize the just following orders defense um, I can't remember the exact citation, um, but it's specifically in one of these things from Project BioShield or from the PrEP Act that says uh, anyone who administers these products in compliance with what the Health and Human Services Secretary has directed them to do cannot be found as a matter of law to be um, having committed a, an act of willful misconduct because they were following the order, so goes the law. However, that law also could be changed. If, if Congress um, stepped up and repealed some of these laws that set the whole thing in motion and keep it going, then people who formerly had these liability protections could lose them under the new um legal framework that would be more in alignment with moral law and natural law and divine law and all of the things that matter in a moral and ethical um, framework. Right. And, and, and you had mentioned like we've seen this happen in our, not maybe not our lifetime, but certainly in, in the recent era when they mm-hmm. did a horrible, tragic, despicable experiments on groups of people that they determined were deplorable, the Jews, uh, the homosexuals, the gypsies, um, the political dissidents. And they did these experiments, and I was actually reading through them the other day, and they are just absolutely just demented and disgusting what they did to these people. And and it was fine because, hey, who else are you going to use? Well, we came together as a world and said, no, that's not going to cut it. We're not going to allow you to do that. And many doctors, many, many doctors were hung by their necks until they were dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, the lesson that the globalists learned from that is to build up this this system that appears to be benevolent and to set up this system whereby people go to get it themselves instead of having to imprison them or pin them down. I think They've left themselves the options to do those those um, 
imprisonment and forced um, tactics. But what they wanted was to make us walk into the abattoir volu- apparently voluntarily. Um, right. and To put us in so much and, fear that we can't, can't think of doing anything else. But let me go right. get the newest shot because I'm so fearful of everything in this world that I need this to live. When in reality, right. that could be what kills you. Right. And the, the, thing that, the thing that is difficult, one of the many things that is difficult about talking about it is people have a sense of shame and guilt around having fallen for it. Um, and it's been put in place very, very secretly and quietly and gradually over like 75 years. And then it was accelerated in the last five since, since 2017, because 2017 is when they really, really, really got it, the killed informed consent. And the only way that we could have found out that they had done these things over the last 75 years and that they had done the acceleration over the last five is for the thing to have happened, for them to have tried to use it starting in January of 2020. So I don't think people should, to the extent they can, accept the sense of guilt and shame for having allowed this to happen to us. Um, I, I just I don't think it's constructive because I think you can fight back better once you know this was done to us. Like specific people designed specific things to make us think certain ways and to make us not be able to see certain things and only focus on other things. And now we are able to see what those specific people have done at specific times in history. And some of them are very recent and now we can fight back. Um, Yeah. I'm just, I'm very concerned about people just being like, well, it's my fault that I let Congress get away with this. I let the health and human services secretary and the administrative state rise up. And we didn't. It's like I don't know. I think that's I think that's a very very critical point that you're making. That don't blame yourself. You know, you you had a crime committed against you, and and you're still hopefully still not so injured that you can't be righteously angry and go help get this. And and this is all nonviolent. I want to make it very clear that this is all nonviolent that I'm advocating for, but get the system moving to where we get Mm -hmm. legal justice and, and make barriers to where this never happens again to anyone. I mean, we don't, it's, it's not clearly apparent to most people yet, but this will be looked back at and people will go, man, Mangala had nothing on these, these people pushing this. And right. David Martin said something about that the other day. He's like, I, people talk about Nuremberg 2.0 and compared to what's happening now, the Nazis look good. Yeah. And I think he's right. He's absolutely right. This the Nazis horrible. were kindergarten. This is much to... more premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I uh, just want to ram that home point one, that point home one more time that if you were tricked, you were tricked. And that's how crimes get committed against people. You know, no one says, oh, let yeah. me just let you into my house and let you steal all my stuff. No, you somehow they got into your house without your permission. Well, if you didn't want this and you were coerced, you had any bit of pressure at all, then that's coercion. They busted into your house and they took things they shouldn't have. To be secure in your personal effects means secure in your body as well, that they can't change your DNA. 
And there's suspicion that these could be changing DNA. We actually have a, uh, a lab study that came out that said that it does change human genome in a test tube within, I think it was like six hours of, of exposure to these things. And it's, yeah. And Todd Callender has mentioned, well, when you change someone's DNA, the patent holder of that change owns the person, at least legally. That may not work right. out in reality. That's an interesting thing, too, because there will be a, a conflict in that, because in 2011, Congress actually did pass a statute saying patent law holds except with respect to the ownership of human beings, um, which is really interesting. Like, it, it, it will probably, in some of these court cases, come down to a, a, a court will have to decide between the 2013 precedent about associated molecular or whatever that mm-hmm. case is, the that case. calendar site. Yeah, and um, and this 2011 Congressional Act, which specifically made a carve-out and said, yes, patent holders own own the right to living organisms except human beings. And and they, they did, I can't remember the exact language, but they did make it broad enough that it, it's sort of anything that has a human character. Um, well, not just... And we can see yeah. that, you know, an example of that with Monsanto. You know, Monsanto, they genetically changed some corn, I guess it was, or some plant. And let's say, and then it went into someone else's field, and they found that genetic material in this other farmer's field. And they they sued, either on copyright or patent, I'm not sure which one, um, that farmer for selling the wrong product because it was their product. Well, it's that same logic can be applied to humans, unfortunately. But even bigger than right. that. If I don't have the choice to make informed consent and to do something for my will, then I have no will and I am therefore a slave. If I don't have right. the choice, because then my masters take away my ability to buy food, my ability to, to move about the country, to, to do anything that a normal free human would do, then I'm no longer free if I must take right. something to keep those freedoms. I'm considered a slave. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else that you want to add in before we have to say goodbye today? Um, no, I've covered a lot of ground. I want to thank you so much for coming on and visiting with me today. Sorry about the technical issues. How else can thank you for having me. can viewers and listeners hear you and get your information that you're that you're um, compiling and putting out? Um, most of my work is at my Substack, which is Daily Wick News. E-A-I-L-I-W-I-C-K um, news N-E-W-S dot substack dot com and that's pretty much I have an archive site that's, that's connected to that one um, where I put PDFs of my of my work for it to be easier to download but the main place where I post a few times a week is Daily Wake News Again I want to thank you very much for coming on and giving some, some hope here at the end because again it's so important that a if you were tricked, you don't have to stay tricked. You can open your eyes and you can right. make legal roads so this doesn't happen to anyone else again. Right. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Just a reminder for everyone out there, in duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. <laughs>